Welcome to Dizzy People's Radio, the podcast where a young comedy writer in Los Angeles desperately searches for direction. I'm Alex Diane. Today, a great show. How do I know? Because last week's show was great. It was the most listened to episode yet. And today is part two. The next part of that. The continuation. My guest is community writer Megan Gans. This week we will hear, I think, exclusively about community. Last week we heard a little bit more about her. I recommend that. I don't think it matters what order. Again, last week was the most listened to episode of this show yet. Thank you for listening. And thank you for not skipping the part where I talk. I got a little bit angry this week for a stupid reason. I got a parking ticket. That seems natural. It seems like I can't imagine not getting weirdly frustrated about a parking ticket. There's just something so, so wrong. Like, like it just feels like a great injustice has been done. I don't think anyone's ever gotten a parking ticket and said, Yep, they're right. I parked in the wrong place. Next time, I'll be more careful. You get it, and it's just like, oh, they they set me up. They wanted this. They knew I wouldn't see the sign over there. They knew I wouldn't read that block of text in the middle of all the other text. They, they've got me right where they want me. But I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pay it. It was a UCLA parking ticket, so, and there's a website on the back where you can appeal it. I'm, I'm not gonna win. I thought, as soon as I got it, I was like, um, I'm appealing this. I'm taking this all the way to the top. I will not pay this. I'm just gonna pay it. Uh, because there was a sign, it was a bad sign, but there was a sign. There was a sign. But I can only imagine the appeals that they get. I like to think that there are, they, they just get the most indignant emails with photos attached of, of just bare walls with no signs on them. All the space where they could be hanging signs, but they don't. Just like letters. Uh, how dare you people. Taking advantage of students. You knew we wouldn't read that over there. Are you happy? Are you people happy? But that, I'm not gonna... Are you happy? All right, you got me. Another thing happened in the car this week. I heard the radio edit of a certain Jay-Z and Kanye West song, the title of which I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say. They took out so many words, curse words, words that you can't say on the radio. They took so many out of the song that all that was left was an incomprehensible series of vocal blurts. There was no song left. There was no point in listening to the song. It was it was just gibberish. When your dad says the the rap music is just noise. In this case, he would have been right. There was nothing left to it. It reminded me of when I was younger, when digital cable was new. My TV did this thing where every once in a while the sound would cut out for just a second. At the time, I was watching a lot of The Cosby Show, and I'd just hear Cliff Huxtable saying something, and there would be a slight pause, and to my radio-saturated brain, it just sounded like 
Cliff Huxtable was cursing out Theo Huxtable. Theo, why don't you and your mother... Theo, let me tell you about girls. And I'd say, what What did Bill Cosby just say? And then I'd realize, that's what censorship is doing to me. I hear any any slight pause, I'm just hearing curse words. Once again, I'd like to thank David Janov, the purveyor of the Little Modern Theater where this interview took place. Theo, play the interview. Your next episode is at 317, did I hear? 317, yeah. And how are you feeling about that? Um, I loved it. I loved is that is it a secret what the story is? Is um, that out there? No, it's uh it's been spoiled a little bit. I mean, spoiler alert if anybody doesn't want to hear, like turn the volume down for a little while. But uh uh it's a law and order episode. Oh, okay. Um that's the uh they, they sort of I mean it's it's hard. I know people don't like spoilers, but it's also really hard to keep excitement up about your show when it's been off the air for months. So you kind of have to say some things that are coming up in order to keep fans interested. And that was one of the ones that people were really excited. And I don't think knowing that, I mean, God forbid our show be the type of show where knowing what kind of genre we're doing is spoils the whole episode. I mean, you could have never seen an episode of Law and Order and watch that. And I know people that have and have seen it and never seen an episode and perfectly enjoyed it. I mean, it's a story about our characters. They're in bio class. There's a story there. Um, it's not. It's not just like all of a sudden there being cops for no reason, you know, it's, uh, there's definitely grounded character dynamics, but, um, but I am very excited about that episode. I was a huge fan of law and order for a long time. Um, we'd been batting around the idea of doing a law and order type episode for a while. And when I came up in rotation for the second time this year, Dan, you know, as he was leaving the room goes, Gans, take that law and order thing. And so, <laughs> we were breaking that and it was fun because it was basically like coming up with a mystery. You know, you had to come up with a case and then you had to think of like the twists and like all, it was a totally different type of story breaking than I've ever done before and a different muscle to flex. And I had an absolute blast doing it. It was, it ended up really funny and, and you know that that format is going to work because it's worked on TV for 16 years or however long. So, um, and, and it was great. It's like, it's perfect. It's 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 uh. It re- the table read was really funny, and the and everyone on the cast was really psyched to to have the episode, and um and Michael K. Williams is in it again, and uh, I'm such a big fan of his, and made a point of that. That was the first time I had um see I'd been able to work with him on set, and I and I made a point of uh telling him like actually you know in a really geeky fan way like pulling him aside and going that scene where Omar is testifying in court is the greatest scene on television I have ever seen. I am obsessed with The Wire, I thought. And I've always really liked cops and justice and law and order. I, I tend to, when I get deep into the season and I only and I, when I come home and I have maybe 30 minutes before I go to bed, I tend to watch shows about murder. I don't know why. I'm like fascinated. I watch a lot of true crime documentaries and stuff like that. Um, I think it's just because you need the exact opposite. Like if you work at a pizza place, you don't come home and eat pizza. You need like the exact opposite thing to what you're doing all day. And uh, and so so I really love that one. I'm super excited for fans to see it. I think it's going to be, I think they're going to be, uh, I think that they're, that it's not spoiled. I think that they're going to be, they're going to be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> did you see the 30 Rock where they recently I did? I did see that one. Yeah. We always think like, why doesn't NBC tell us when these things, because 
it's the same company. You'd think that the, the word would spread. Like I, I remember um, Halloween two years ago, we had the Dean dresses Lady Gaga, and then the office had their had Wade or, or what's his name Gabe mm-hmm. uh, dressed as Lady Gaga, and it's like there's no like isn't that what you guys do? Aren't you supposed to send an email <laughs> saying that there's these individual jokes? Come on, like, <laughs> but but come on, like, do well, ha- having watched like NBC Thursday my whole life, it happens all the time, like, yeah. and I always think that NBC issued a memo like everybody do a story about this. I know, no, it's never like they never <laughs> first of all NBC never tells us what kind of stories to do ever they've never said like I think you guys should do a blah 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 but um but I love 30 Rock I watch it all the time I watched it the one just last night the uh um Grand Mentor episode um which was written by my friend Sam Means he just started there we tried to get him on community but he took 30 Rock job which uh. was good for them uh really good for them he's brilliant but it was so hilarious I would I would know and and seeing them do it I mean they they have their own take on it like obviously ours isn't going to be like that um and I think like it, you know that that show format has been around for a while it's not like yeah. it, only one person can do it or anything i think there's de- definite like differences between the two and and again like the point you could describe what happens in that episode without even mentioning law and order once it's got a whole storyline that doesn't have anything to do with cops or medical examiners or anything like that so uh, so, and, but we did actually, we secured the chunchunks. So those are going to be in the actual law and order oh. chunchunks <laughs> are going to be, and just for anyone that's, I don't know if this is copacetic to talk about, but just for anyone that's like interested, $65,000 to play chunk. Really? Yes. It's amazing what music rights cost. Like incredible. I know they is joke about it. Layla? On, <laughs> they joke about it on 30 rock when they talked about uptown girl and costing like 80 grand or whatever. Um, it's true. They cost like an insane amount of money, but, but thankfully like working with NBC and NBC really loved the episode and they, they actually like had, they wanted it. They were like, move it up in the rotation. Like, but it's, it's tied to episodes that come after it. So it can't, just story wise, like we have to put it where it is, but uh, April 26th is when it's coming out too. But, um, but uh, yeah, they they uh, I I love I love that we have that uh, that but NBC um, set, like asked permission from the Law and Order people and like we worked it out with them so then we can use it and it's and it's great. I'm surprised and, NBC doesn't own Chun Chun. I know you would think that they, but you know Dick will. Apparently, if you read about, it's really fascinating. Read about the Chun Chun because there's so many sounds in, within that sound. There's like. There's some something I read on Wikipedia that that one of the things that they used in order to make that sound was like the sound of a thousand gongs being <laughs> struck at the same time or something. I mean, it's like an incredibly complex sound that you just think is some somebody going chung chung like that's what it sounds like. But uh, uh, yeah, so I'm uh, yeah I'm really excited about that. Uh, other episodes, I mean, honestly, uh, the next the next two are great. Um, uh, and, and the, and and there, there's a bunch of really cool ones this season, but the run that starts with law and order, uh, and goes to the end of the season is like you, I mean, it's, it feels like finale, 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 finale. (laughs) I mean, like we really busted out like all the stops. I don't know. We basically almost killed our crew and, and production. Like it was, it was every week was like, and then we're going to do this bigger thing. And now it's going to do. So I think fans are, have a lot to look forward to. Uh, one thing I noticed about your episodes is that they all revolve around one character terrorizing all the other <laughs> characters. Oh, I it's never like, noticed that. Uh, Annie Pierce yeah, and, the and Dean. Yeah, and the Dean, yeah. And they're, they're all uh, handhelds 
filmed, mm-hmm. all directed by Joe Russo. Uh, the actually, my last one uh, wasn't, and my my yeah, my last one wasn't directed by him. But I do love Joe Russo. He's been really he. I mean, he did a bunch of the Arrested Development stuff, and he's very mm-hmm. good with that handheld. And I think our characters feel really natural in that handheld field. And and I, I feel and I and I think that's because they have now such a good chemistry with each other that you can kind of let moments play out without cutting, you know, between them. And I think um, we do a lot of that on the Law and Order episode as well. Law and Order, the Law and Order one was directed by um, Rob Schraub, who's a friend of Dan's mm-hmm. from Channel 101 days and uh, who is really great, do, has done stuff with Sarah Silverman and who just immediately got Law and Order. It was like awesome in that direction. And there's a lot of that feeling to that gritty sort of like handheld feeling um and but that terrorizing one person that's actually not true about law and order that's that that'll break that mold but um uh yeah i i i didn't you know like we always start with the story and then the story dictates those things and the thing that was the the reason that we used handheld for instance in like cooperative calligraphy was that as the episode progressed you'll notice that the beginning of it is very standard the cameras are locked off it feels like it's a normal episode of the show and then as the insanity grows you start getting that 12 angry men feel by having cameras sort of be like swiveling around the action and all of a sudden you feel like that you know that you're in this room with these people and they're losing their minds together and that's the same thing obviously with documentary filmmaking redux it's like the same sort of thing it's like um everybody's losing their mind and these cameras are really loose and they're just capturing it in the moment and uh and uh and i I love that i think that they work well and thank god our our cast is like talented enough to be able to handle that um that those changes in genre from week to week like one week they're doing a mockumentary and the next week they're doing a uh i don't know animated thing and then and then they're doing a zombie horror episode and they like they just roll with the punches which is awesome there isn't anyone like terrorizing <laughs> Me? In your light, yeah, terrorizing you that you're well, just writing everyone, about. You know what's funny is everyone thought I saw a lot of fans thinking that the um that the 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 uh three oh eight, the uh the Dean's episode was my comment on Dan. Like everyone thought that that was me being, and which is amazing that people think that like I'm like I'm sitting at a job and being like I'm gonna I'm gonna get this through past the boss and he won't even know that this is my comment on his like terrorizing us. Obviously, we put some of Dan like into it. I mean, like <laughs> actually, there was a line uh, that it was verbatim from his mouth that we and he knows like he's a, the biggest per, he makes fun of himself the most for this stuff so it's not like it's not like you even have to poke fun at Dan he's already doing it but that line when the dean says I'm surrounded by assassins Dan has actually said that in the room and meant it like it feels like he so we but we tease him when we put that stuff in and like later in the season we do that again with um with Chang's character we like give him some lines that are straight from Dan's mouth uh and and Dan's a good sport about that stuff but but no it's not it's not like like I said it's it's always story based and the reason that we I mean Dan was the one who uh decided that the dean should be making that commercial because originally we'd been talking about we wanted to do a hearts of darkness kind of thing and just in terms of we were thinking wouldn't it be cool if if we were doing a documentary about the making of a, of a movie, but originally we had thought, oh, we'll do a documentary about Abed making a move, making some sort of film, because that seemed like a natural course, but then, but then who's doing this documentary? You know, like we didn't, we don't want to be 
we don't want to be, and not to disparage them, but you don't want to be modern family where it's just like, yeah, who knows? It's just a documentary crew you never meet. Um, and, uh, and so we always want to, we always want to have a reason in the story that something's being filmed. If we're going to say, if we're going to have characters looking at a camera, we need that to be part of the story or else it's just, we're just aping somebody else's style. Um, so in the in the first documentary film, it's because Pierce asked Abed to film this thing. And in the second one, it was because Abed saw the Dean was gonna go, like he's smart enough to know a Hearts of Darkness when he sees one. So he sees <laughs> the Dean have something that needs to be really good and important to him. And, uh, and he's like, well, I'm going to put the cameras on this because that's where the story is. This is the story of somebody going insane while trying to make something good. And obviously our own experience bled into that. I mean, you care, if you care so much about something, uh, you, and that you're terrified of messing it up, you terrorize the people around you. I mean, I, my friend during the season, I, my friend base gets less and less because I come home and I'm in such a state of like raw emotion because I am trying so hard to be the absolute best at my job. And if I feel like I didn't do good, I can't sit with myself. I hate myself in the way that like fans hate shows when they jump the shark, like, but it comes from an internal place that you can't get rid of. And, uh, and so we put all of those feelings. I mean, that's the feeling of a creator. We put those into the Dean of like, he cares about this so so much um, that he's going to ruin it. Like the, the fact that if he just didn't care, if he just shot something off from the hip, if he just went, whatever, Greendale commercial, which is sort of his attitude in the first act, you know, he's just like, yeah, yeah, it's not going to be perfect. Just throw some people, give him a Frisbee, like put him in front of the camera, who cares? Um, and then Louis Guzman comes in and all of a sudden the Dean starts thinking like Louis Guzman is his Vietnam. It's he, him, <laughs> him coming in is, is like Coppola. If you watch Hearts of Darkness, Coppola says, you know, basically you can't make a shitty movie about Vietnam because it's such an important subject. And so the Dean has this thing come in and then now he views as now it's going to be good. Now it's going to be important. And the tragedy of that is that that means that he didn't think his school was good enough before that guy showed up. And that's the real sad, I mean, that's the atonement that he has to, that's the atonement with his father that he has to come to grips with in the, in the, um, in the third act is you know, Louise Guzman saying to him, like, you don't deserve this school because you care more about the people who have left Greendale than the people that are here. Um, you put more emphasis on the alumni than on the students. And that's where you've gone astray. You keep trying to make this a real college instead of caring about the kind of school that it is. And I think that was like an important, that was like the Dean's atonement with the school. And then after episodes we see after that, he's, you know, he's saying, um, for instance, in Christmas, uh, Greendale's an all-inclusive school. Let's let Britta sing her awkward song. He he's accepted the fact that this <laughs> school is a purgatory for people who are, you know, between one version of themselves and another. And that is where he shines. And there's later episodes coming up where even we expound on that even further, like with the Dean and what his role is there and, and, and him really, um, deciding that he's truly in love with Greendale in a real way, not in an embarrassed way, not in a I wish that it were a better way, but like, I love this school. I love the people that go here, especially Jeffrey a little bit more, but you know. You mentioned atoning with the father. Are you ever going to be able to write anything without drawing a circle? <laughs> I don't think so. I dream about circles. I think <laughs> about them all the time. Uh, it's a good model. Um, and uh, and it, it's good for telling a complete story. I mean, we, 
it, if, if nothing else, it forces you to get to your point faster. You don't delay. You don't have characters going, I have a secret until the end of the <laughs> second act. You know, if they have a secret, it blows up in their face by the end of the first act. If they, you know, the, the, that's for, it's like the Dean. We didn't have him trying to make a commercial for a long time before everything started going poorly. It was Louis Guzman was a part of the commercial by the end of the first act and every, and then the second act, by the end of the second act, everything has fallen apart so that you can really tell this full and complete story. And we could have just, you know, done the thing that was going well and then, oh no, it went poorly and isn't it hilarious how it went poorly, that's the end. But it really makes you tell like a whole complete. And so it, it is useful to me. And, and, and you know, um, uh, it's not forced upon us. Like it really, and it's a natural that for the show now. It's like a part of the show, this story circle, this atonement with the father. I mean, it's even filtered into the show with lines like having Abed say, this is the December of our December. It's This is the darkest timeline. This is the part where we atone with our father. And this season, and it makes natural sense. The first season, Jeff is resisting. He's saying, I'm not a part of this. I'm a lawyer. I don't, I don't want to get involved in all your shenanigans. And then, uh, and then he crosses a threshold of, caring and caring about these people and and letting them into his life and letting them affect him and getting involved in realizing he's this hero of the group but then because of that his meeting with the goddesses that Dana said that the meeting with the goddesses in the Valentine's Day episode of the second season when he tells the group I love you because now he's on the he's on the hook he he said I love you and then immediately everything starts falling apart in a really big way and um and now that he's, a, you know, he's atoning with his father in this season, he's trying to become a lawyer. Uh, he's trying to stay focused on his studies. He should have graduated in two years. It's the third <laughs> year now. He's still not done because he's getting involved in all this. And I think the, the, this season, you'll really see how close he comes to losing everything that he thinks matters to him and atoning with his father and realizing what is really important to him. And because of that, becoming a more complete person and uh, and probably a better if he wants to be a lawyer a better lawyer a better a better individual all around and and having the probably the first real friends in his life people that he can't stop caring about I mean you see him with like for instance Pierce in the in the Dungeons and Dragons episode and you see him in the first documentary episode he hates that guy he can't stand him and yet there's a part of him that understands that and doesn't you know they they are two sides of the same coin Jeff fears becoming Pierce just as much as he hates him <laughs> and fears being excluded, even though he says he doesn't, you know, he, in a more cosmic way, he's like feared as he fears abandonment. His dad left him. He doesn't want to be left alone. And that's made him put this, uh, steely demeanor on it's made him use his words and become a, uh, to, to get out of any situation, become a moral relativist because he, that's his protection. Whereas Pierce has sort of regressed to this like baby that's just cries and hits people and says like, I want my bottle. I want what I want. Um, but those are two people that have been hurt in the same way and they have a lot in common and it's not, it's really, it has to be this moment where Jeff finally realizes that he and Pierce are not all that different in order for, for them to both truly grow and like move on so I think story circles are important I think that it's like it's so great that that was my first comedy job that, that introduced me to that because I think my stories from now on are going to be like th proper three act stories instead of just sort of like oh no so and so has a secret uh oh it came out the end <laughs> <laughs> how much time in the writer's room is spent problem solving like saying okay we don't know what to do with Chang now or uh, how are we going to make the dean more a part of the group? 
uh, or like just identifying. We don't know who Shirley is. Mm -hmm. uh, like identifying things and building stories off of that. Um, do you mean like in a in a seasonal aspect? Like if we're starting to write a story and then we say like we haven't had Chang in a while, how are we going to fit him in? That sort of stuff, or like individual stories. How long does it take? Like for instance in chaos theory for us to decide whether or not we're going to include the Dean in the episode or, I mean, basically all of story breaking is asking those questions and dealing with those problems. And it can take anywhere from, uh, a week, uh, depending on how easily the story, how simple the story feels to us to, I think the first, um, I remember the first Halloween, the second season Halloween episode took like six weeks to break because, and the question there was, why do they all turn into zombies? And that's a big question. And it's one that can be a clanker if you don't deal with it correctly. And so for a long time, we've pursued this avenue of, oh, there's this weird drug they're testing on campus. And it's like a study drug and it makes people, you know, and we it's like a sort of Adderall route. And we went down that road for a really, really long time. And then it was just like, it just seemed like too much explanation. Like it was like, it was never going to be, it never seemed like it was going to be that good of a reason. And so we were eventually just like taco meat from the army. That sounds so crazy that, that you, do, you don't need to justify that. Cause it's insane. And the, you know, like you're, it's not supposed to sound logical. It's supposed to sound like something that the government is co covering up. Um, so I would say like a fair amount of story breaking is dealing with those questions. I mean, it's, it's, why would Britta do this? Why does Britta think about Shirley this way? If if uh, if Annie um, stepped on Abed's DVD, uh, what would Abed do about it? What would be her fears about what he would do? What would be her way of handling it? You know, and 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 then how do we make sure that that doesn't end up being like standard sitcom fare? Well, you have Troy say, you know how many sitcoms have done this? You know, Abed knows this thing. You can't you can't get out that way. You can't just replace it with like a another DVD. Um, so things like that. So yeah, I would say like a fair amount of time. Uh, we we let the story always dictate those things though. Like we're never sitting there going, we have to cram Chang into this episode or we have to like make sure that Shirley has a thing or anything like the story takes us where we want to go. Now, like we do definitely from episodes to episodes, look at the previous episodes and go, okay, well, we've been really strong on Annie for a while where are we at in the Shirley like macro storyline? Uh, what would be a good thing for Shirley to be going through right now? Um, you know, with, with Andre or, or something like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that, that's sort of problems. Like that's all in the breaking. I mean that, that largely, um, once we, <clears throat> once we settle on the story, there's not so much like, there's not so much like, oh, Pierce hasn't had a line on this page, so cram in a line for him or anything like that. It's like, then you're pretty much <laughs> off to the races. Although Chevy, I'm sure, wishes that we would like throw some more. Just always make sure every three lines was his line. <laughs> oh, um, I didn't talk about this. Uh, you're a big fan of Peep Show. I love Peep Show, yeah. Have you finished it? Uh, yeah, I've watched all the stuff that's available to us, like I've, that I've watched on on Netflix, Watch Instant, and I, I'm sad you can only buy the first season uh, on um, on DVDs. I think like they only ha they've only released as far as that last time I checked, they only released one. But I absolutely love that show. I think it's and it really exemplifies for me um, what's so what's so great about 
uh, those BBC comedies in, in that they don't allow the production, the production values to, uh, drown the comedy. I mean, you don't feel like you're watching them thinking like, Oh, look at all these beautiful people sitting in this beautiful room with everything so beautiful Mm -hmm. and colorful, like things are dirty and messy. And it feels like some people feels like those guys actually did just take two cameras out to an apartment building and shoot the thing. And it really lets all of the dialogue shine through. I mean, there's not that, that show it's, it was so funny to me that they kept trying to, for a long time, they were trying to develop an American version of peep show. Mm. And I was like, good luck. Like, <laughs> good luck. What, what is that? What is that saying? That's like, you're trying to develop a British version of Johnny Carson. Like what, what are you talking about? It's those guys. That's why you watch it. It's, it's, it's those Mitchell and Webb are so funny together that's what you're watching and the and they're really like expert writing i mean the jokes are so funny there and and uh and they and they use um vo but they don't you know voiceover they but they don't use it as a crutch it it, it makes a new joke every time and it illuminates the characters and it deepens and broadens them and and uh yeah i love i love that show i think it's fantastic that one and pulling i think pulling is a really I awesome seen show. That. oh you should watch that it's um i i've been saying it's like it's like uh, sex in the city if it had balls and didn't worry about always making the characters look real pretty and likable mm-hmm. um it really like it's it doesn't wallow pulling doesn't wallow in like grossness and stuff but it really has these like real characters and they make real mistakes and they're very unattractive i mean not unattractive physically i mean like unattractive people like they're not trying to make good life decisions for themselves and uh and it's written so well and it feels like problems that my female friends like actually do have and and i love that show i think it's fan i think of that one's really good as well have you seen fresh meat no. Uh, it's newer. It's um, Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong. Those are the peep show writers, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, Robert Webb has like a recurring character in it. But oh, it's, really? Yeah. Fresh Meat. I'm going to watch it. Is it on Netflix? Um, I don't know. I illegal I illegaled it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's okay. I feel like <laughs> I've had so many uh, fans in the UK of the community be like, hey, good episodes. I totally would watch them illegally. And I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. You know, like we, I wish that they were playing. Apparently they're just getting the second season now in the UK, the second season of community. So I've jokingly been like, enjoy it for the first time guys, even though they've all, anyone that's a fan of the show knows how to find it. But, um, but, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll check that out. Fresh meat. I actually want to go to London over my hiatus and, uh, talk with anyone from the BBC that will talk to me because I think that the way that they make television shows, especially for comedies makes so much more sense having a smaller number of episodes per season, having less seasons, having, you know, like, so you can tell a real full complete and especially dark story. If that's what you want to tell, I think like, I, I really gravitate towards that model. I think Peep Show is like the community of uh, yeah. of because they they also struggle with the ratings. Yeah, I think like they did a big uh, street campaign and like ads and oh, still really? nobody nobody started watching oh, it. Oh God, yeah, it's um you know that stuff is that stuff is rough. I think I think we're going through a really hard time right now where TV is no longer the way that people watch TV and like how do you deal with that? Like the rating system is going to have to fly by the wayside. We're going to have to figure out some other way to judge whether a TV show is doing well or not because like yeah, I I Peep Show is an incredible show and and it's 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 objectively incredible for anyone that watches like anybody that loves 30 Rock is going to love that show. That's just, you know, it's it's not there's nothing different about it. There's not it's not weird or inaccessible. Um it's uh so yeah, I I'm 
huge, huge fan. And, and thankfully like Netflix watch instant and stuff is like opening. I mean, I'm sure that having all of their episodes on Netflix watch instant is like helping them grow their fan base, especially here, just like people being able to access it and be aware of it. And I know they played it on Hulu like a lot for a while. They had like all the seasons up and that was really great. Um, but yeah, that's funny. I mean, God, that's that would be flattering to think that they're the the community. Of, or, or, like, I would be flattered to think that we're the peep show of uh, of American television. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I guess I just meant like in in uh, in their struggle to get people to watch the this brilliant yeah. thing. Um, is there like my question is with all that changing is like does NBC really need to be the channel where you go for the smartest comedies like should it be on cable should it be on Netflix like sh- should just the networks that are meant for a mm-hmm. huge audience just be a bunch of reality shows I don't I don't think it has so much to do with like networks as it does um platforms of how you're viewing the media because I think that NBC may very well for a long time and has been the place that you do go for like good smart comedies I think they have they still I mean FX is doing really well and IFC is like growing their comedy stuff as well and I think there's a lot of people but but there is a distinct difference between the kinds of shows that you're going to watch on NBC and the kinds that you're going to watch on CBS in a good way because there are people that love CBS shows and want to watch that sort of comedy and they should be allowed to know what kind of networks like that network should be a certain style so that they know where to get that that um, that content um, and so the branding is not the problem I think it's just thinking that that our show is only popular if people turn on a television set to watch it at 8 p.m. Uh, and that it's not popular if they, for instance, watch it online, if they buy the DVDs. Uh, and, and so I, I think it's not, it's not a matter of like, should people who have good smart television shows start going to cable? It's more of a thing of should networks and cable stations stop judging the success of what shows they have based on, yeah, like I said, how many people tune in on that night. Should they start looking at things like Twitter response, uh, DVD sales? Um, I mean, they can't really monitor legal downloads, I guess, that well, but but things like that fan base, fan like support, reaction. Uh, I mean, we've got, we get lots of newspaper articles, critical acclaim, reviews written about us, people like, you know, liking the show. That should count for something that's somewhere, even though we, you know, get 1.5 or, or whatever. Um, and, uh, and so I think, I think it would be better. Uh, I would, I would prefer if instead of, NBC thinking of itself like a cable network, if NBC just started thinking of itself as a multi-platform network that was just as much an online entity as it was on a television set. And I think if, if they started judging, if they started thinking of themselves that way, you might be able to see a sort of wild west um, of, of internet, like a boom in terms of people like, because there's infinite space online for television shows. When you, when you put something on a television set, um, you only have you have you can play one show at one time at eight o'clock and you like right now this this comedy block they have on Thursday there are only four spaces and that's why we got bumped for a while because you, you only had four spaces and they had new shows and they wanted to broadcast their new shows and people you know were getting all mad at NBC and saying do you hate community no NBC doesn't hate community they just only have four spots that they can put shows in and they have other shows they've put a lot of money into that they want to see if those ones can become successful as well and and fortunately they're, they're tied still to thinking about well, what are we going to put on after the office? Because the, those eyeballs in the office, 
we want to put something on that they'll keep watching afterwards. Whereas online, and if you're not tied to a, a, a time frame, uh, you can have. 50 shows going at once. Cause what do you care? I mean, like people can access them like magazines. I mean, it can be subscription based. It can be like iTunes and, and shows can keep being made if people keep buying them, if people keep downloading them and it doesn't matter. Like we could make 20 episodes a season or we could make 10 and it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter to like their, um, ad dollars and things like that. It would it would just matter to our fans and people coming. It would be more direct connection, I think, in that way. Um, and and so I, I would I would say that we sh- that it, hopefully it will gravitate towards that because then there'd be no reason why NBC couldn't have every smart comedy on television on NBC if they wanted. If they were the people that were the best at producing those shows and they were the best people at at finding really good talent and developing those shows in a really creative, smart, highbrow, you know, esoteric way, uh, then they would be the leader. And that would be the site that you would always go to because you would know that NBC.com is the one where you can find all the best shows. Um, and that, that could still equal dollars for them. I just think that there's a fear of doing that transfer over because right now ad dollars are all based on uh, ratings. And so Big Bang Theory looks like a better show than ours because it has more eyeballs. So to Crest, toothpaste, like they care more about that show. And if they're not wrong, like that's the, that's the model that's been working for a really long time. I just think that it's not working anymore. I think it's outdated. And I think that, uh, kids are, aren't, you know, they're not watching commercials. They're not buying a certain type of cereal because they saw it between this part of community and that part of community. But that's not to say that they don't still go to NBC for good quality entertainment. Um, they just, they just don't go to NBC the channel. <laughs> well, that's why why I'm asking. Like, uh, why I ask the question at this point if it's not working and if their monetization system is based on ratings and ad dollars on live broadcasts, then at this point for a show that isn't uh, like Two and a Half Men, um, like that's that's very appealing to a mass audience. Is is it better to just go to either a cable station? Or Netflix, or or YouTube, even, um, so that you're not worried every week about how many people are watching. Yeah, I think though it's it's it can't be a thing where people jump ship. I think it's a slow and gradual change, and it's just gonna. I think that they're with every year they're learning more of that stuff. It's it's slow. It's a bit, huge business. I mean, billions of dollars. It's very expensive to make a TV show. Mm-hmm. So I understand them being cautious and not just jumping on a Twitter craze because all of a sudden, like, they're not going to say, "Oh, this show's popular on Twitter, so let's spend the two million dollars an episode that it makes that, that it takes to make that show." It makes sense that they're that 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 um, corporate America is a little bit behind the times. They need to be a little bit cautious. Um, so I don't think jumping ship is the, is the, uh, is the key. I think though the way, the way, the best way to do it is like the way that things have been going with like our show where they take it off the air and NBC is being told by the internet and being told by all these fan groups, like, Hey, you didn't know that there was like, for instance, one of the best things to our credit that, that uh, I think has really, um, helped us keep getting renewed and is really showing NBC like, um, the truth about uh, you know us having a large 
uh, fan base that isn't being judged by ratings is that our DVDs sell really well, much better than you would expect for the ratings that we get. Um, I think our first season DVDs sold better than 30 Rocks. Like, I mean, they, they didn't, like, Sony and NBC never expected that stuff to happen, but that means that there's a fan base out there that that isn't being captured and I mean by your your standard definition and I think you know money talks and those sort of situations they need to start seeing revenue coming from those places in order to gravitate towards those places unfortunately they're not just going to decide to accept the internet because a lot of nerds tell them on twitter to do it it's just not going to happen you can scream as much as you want they need to start seeing dollars pour in in order to through those venues in order to start moving that way and they obviously have because you know, how long has it been since we even had Hulu and now everything goes up on Hulu and they make a point to make sure that like those episodes are rerun on Hulu and Hulu matters. And they're now they're, they're looking at those ratings finally, but it's only been within the last few years. So that stuff is gradual, but I think it's going to be, I mean, hopefully by the time I have, I'm pitching a show and like, I'm, you know, hopefully doing my own kind of content, it will be that way. It'll be, nobody will care that it's on at 8 PM. Like they could broadcast my show at three in the morning and I don't give a shit because like the people that are going to watch it are going to watch it because they know about me through whatever you know and they're and they're interested in the show they don't like I already know I, I mean my younger brother just graduated from college and when I ask him you know do any of your friends watch the show oh yeah all of them watch it well where do they watch it oh they watch it on Hulu it comes out at 8 at 3 a.m. <laughs> it's like yeah uh they they know when it drops on Hulu that's like what they that's what they care about they they don't even know what time it's on NBC um but yeah slow and gradual. I'm not, I'm not, you know, a, a throw the baby out with the bathwater type of person. Like I think NBC is a really good company. They've always been super supportive of our show. They've stuck with it. I mean, our show is strange. It's not marketable. I mean, think about like you're, you're selling a show to a network that needs viewers every week. And then you say to them, except it's going to be a different show every week. And if you don't watch it regularly, you're going to have no idea what's going on. Like if you tune into, for instance, the Hearts of Darkness episode, like, like, and people are saying this in the reviews and it's absolutely true. Not a good one for first timers. Have no idea what's happening. Don't understand these characters and why they're being insane. But it's, but people don't appreciate shows anymore. I think there's a new fan base that doesn't appreciate shows that are insular, that just, you can watch an episode and then not watch the next one. And then what, like people don't want to watch TV. They want, they want TV that involves them. They want like Breaking Bad. They want The Wire. They want something that's like nearly literary and it's in its complexity and and I think that NBC supports shows like that and I think that they've been really great I mean they're they're just a company and they're trying to make money and they're unfortunately losing to like Univision as far as like their ratings they're they're behind and so hopefully that being so behind and that will make them I mean that's what fosters uh, making a change is being beaten down in the current environment and going, well, then we are throwing our hat, you know, we're, we're throwing in the towel here and we're moving to something else because what they do have and what they've always had over those other networks is that creatives want to work with NBC. I mean, NBC can be in the toilet bowl and still, if I write a show tomorrow, I will pitch it to NBC first because I grew up watching NBC. It's always been there for, it's always been picking the shows that are good and on the cutting edge and they support their talent and they care about their shows. And you can tell, and they foster that sort of, 
um, creativity and I and I think they should be rewarded and and I think that yeah I think it would be a mistake to think that they're that we should just like chuck them as a network because they're not they, because they don't immediately know about Twitter I mean I can't still explain my mom like to my mom what Twitter is so trying to tell a bunch of people that they should sink a ton of money in, into uh, what kids on Twitter are saying is is, is a hard sell I cut, with NBC, like I, I grew up with it too, and I feel that I, I always felt like I follow NBC like a sports team. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, oh, they're putting that on; it's not doing well. Yeah. It's like they're losing. Oh, they're buying that thing. <laughs> Why are they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But but when they have good shows, like they've been in support of our show. I mean, they, I mean, they're like. I can't imagine a lot of networks that would hear about a My Dinner with Andre episode and go, okay. I mean, like, <laughs> I can't imagine a lot of networks that would support our our show in the way that they have. They really have. They're putting their dollars behind a weird thought experiment out of the mind of Dan Harmon, and that they should be commended for. I mean, if, seriously, like, it's a scary. It's a scary show to back. It's not, you know, it's not. It's not like even Friends, which was very marketable, very, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like friendly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Friendly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's, you can, you can understand these people immediately and, and ours is, you know, it's, it's for like, I think, I think that it's really, it's more accessible to our generation, to the younger generation, and that's what drew me to the show in the first place, because to me, what's alienating about shows is when they don't reference pop culture, and when they don't reference television, and when they don't talk about when something feels like it's uh, like it's on a TV show because that's alienating to me because I've grown up watching TV my entire life. When I talk to my friends, I talk about TV. When I have experiences, I think about them in terms of like what I've seen on TV and what I haven't. So for characters to act like they never turn on their television set is weird and alienating to me. <clears throat> but there's plenty of shows that, you know, that are for like for my mom's generation for instance it freaks her out to have characters say tv show she doesn't know what's happening because tv for her has always been sort of like the theater it's you go to it there's a fourth wall they don't break the fourth wall uh they do their thing on stage and you watch them as a as your own viewer and now obviously theater has moved on past that as well uh and tv has you know now it's it's 30 rocks people winking into cameras you know like they're the the format is more malleable and people that's what you have to do when people become too comfortable with with that medium they start they know tv now they know the sitcom they've seen it a million times and so you have to start uh taking that away from them and going yeah well you saw that well what if they've seen it too that's a new thing right you know and uh and so yeah it's but but um but it's you know t- for for uh, a company to grow and and change with that with a with a TV show that's essentially talking about how um, uh, obsolete TV shows are becoming, but in a way also talking about how important they are and how how ingrained they are with their very dialogue, like with the way we speak to each other. That there's there's barely a difference between television and our lives now. Um, but that's also because of computers and it's because there's no you know, like you're saying, people are finding the writers on Twitter and now part of the reason that part of the way that people sit down to watch the television show is that they've been following my Twitter and seeing that my episode is that's part of the 
play that's part of the dynamic there and and so growing and adapting it's, it's just yeah it's time it's going to take a little bit of time but um i'm really excited about the way that it's going and and it makes me super excited to uh keep in television because i feel like in the next five years it is going to be like a wild west where like it's web series are going to be crazy like are going to be the new thing that's i mean it's already like it's already in the, the sense that major networks are trying to figure out how to get the numbers that YouTube videos are getting, which is amazing. I mean, to think like a kid in Ohio can upload a video and get more views, get so many views that uh, network TV is jealous about like, how did you get that? And with no commercials, with no, uh, with no ad campaigns, with no billboards. And that, that's just telling them like, there's a different model for how you get things out there. Word spreads differently now. It's a whole different thing. Yeah. Uh, so what's next? Have you thought at all? Are you like working on a feature? Have you thought about pilots like uh, or or at least what kinds of things you might want to work on after community? Um, yeah, I, th this is the this is my first year where. Um, oh, God, I'm yawning now thinking about the stuff that I have to do. <laughs> I'm very lazy. Um, that I, can't be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's not. I, yeah, I'm very, on a very ambitious show. Um, I'm very tired. Probably that's the be <laughs> that's the better, uh, more accurate description. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna write a pilot this hiatus, um, mostly because I haven't ever before. I haven't written anything original, thirty pages of, of just my own thing, and and I am of the opinion that probably the first thing that you write is going to be shit. And so you better get it out of your system before people want to look at it. Um, but that's it, never true for you. <laughs> uh, well, uh, uh, but that, that being said, it's like, I've always been writing for a job. And so there's always been the pressure there. And there's always been the structure of someone saying, deliver us this particular thing and this time frame and like this. So it's not like I went home with the bottle episode and had just write a bottle episode. Like I, had an outline that I was producing not and that's not to take away anything I mean like obviously yeah like that was that was good that that gives me confidence to think that I would be able to do it for myself but but I haven't sat down and thought if I were to just make a show of my own what kind of show would I make um and so that's what I'm going to do this hiatus just mostly for myself just to play around with it and now that I know the format a little bit and now that I know story circles and now that I know how to break a story I feel like I should start going into that but I'm in no means like rushing out the door to try to make my own thing. Um, I think like I have a lot to learn still and community is by far the best place to learn that stuff. And I couldn't imagine a better, a better job that I would ever had as far as training for, to, to write for television. I mean, I've basically written for four different types of shows now. I, you know, I, I, I've, written, you know, mockumentary episodes, uh, that, that are like the office while still working on the, sh on a non-mockumentary show. So it really was every sort of workout you could possibly imagine, but but yeah, so I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna travel a lot, and I do I do think it's very important that uh, I like relax and do non-comedy things because you need to have experiences that you can bring back into the room and hopefully like use, you know, 
put into something. I can't, all my experiences can't, I mean, on this show, it would be kind of okay if all my experiences were based on just TV shows I was watching, but, uh, but still I need to like go out and live and do things. And, uh, and, um, and so, yeah, and I'm not rushing out the door or anything to do it, but I, I do feel like it is something that I, 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 I've fallen in love with television. I, I don't see myself breaking into features quite yet, just because I feel like features aren't really a, as much of a writer's game. I mean, television, because of the scheduling and because of the, the constant output of material, writers really do hold a lot of power there and getting their, and you also get to see your material produced very regularly, which is great because movies you can write and be working on for five years and then never see a single frame of it actually made. And that can be a really frustrating process. And maybe you only write three or four in your entire life. Whereas television shows, I've already written four episodes in two years. And so that kind of output is like really exciting to me working on something like that. And, uh, so yeah, so I, so I'm definitely, definitely looking forward to something, something in that vein. Do you think you'd be a good showrunner? Oh, I don't know. I, I, uh, I think so. I'm a really good employee. I, I like, I, right now I'm a really good, um, writer on a staff. I think I'm like a good utilitarian sort of like member. I, I can do a lot. I, I'm good at, but I'm learning all the different things right now. I I'm still failing to grasp editing. I've failed to grasp kind of how episodes are directed and learning all that stuff is crucial to running a show because you have to be able to see the finished product when you start writing the script. And I think, um, I have a, a little bit to learn in that respect. Um, again, exhausted by the notion of it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I uh, you know, I think, I think, um, I think all a really good showrunner needs to to be is somebody who allows their staff to shine, and I think, um, I think Dan in that um, in that way has been a really good model. He he really did on, on for instance cooperative calligraphy that was one of the best edits of any material that I've produced that I've ever seen because he I turned that script in. He went through it and, and did his pass on it, and he took out all the crap that wasn't that great. He left all of the good stuff and made that stuff better, and he let, he let my voice be there, so when I watch that episode, I feel a part of it. I don't feel like it was just rewritten from page one. I feel like I actually contributed to that, and that's the best way to be a showrunner, and honestly, that's the, that's the way you're gonna get the best content. It's not by ruining people's lives by or, or like um, ruining their confidence by constantly rewriting everything that they write. It's, uh, it's by fostering, and and making them care about it because they know that the words that they're going to write might end up in the show. And so they have to put a lot of time and effort into them. So every script that I turn in since then, I've put a lot of effort into because I know that some of my, so the best jokes will stay in that he's very good about knowing what's good and, 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 and keeping the, the letting the cream rise to the top and getting rid of the rest. And so I have like lots of line and lots of my jokes stay in from the writer's drafts and things like that. And, and so in that, sense he's been a really good model because if I were to ever run my own show I would be sure not to overpower my writers making the writing staff a part of the show is is how you're going to keep the concept the content consistent too because I don't think any person is a good enough writer to write 22 episodes a year by themselves by themselves and make them real quality episodes. I mean, you really need a staff and you need a dedicated staff and you need a staff that feels like they're part of the product. And, and it's been great. And also our cast is part of the product. I mean, they're the way that they 
perform their characters informs the way that we write their characters and that that helps with the complexity of the show I mean that's why people for instance have fallen in love with Britta over the three years is because Gillian the actress has changed the character of Britta we have we have imbued Britta with all sorts of Gillian's you know natural energy and so therefore she is able to play that character so much better and so much more lovable and so much more genuine where you watch it and you just can't help but like her and you know and 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 that's the same with all the characters they've really brought themselves into it and and I think that's what grows a show if it were just Dan sitting in an ivory tower and delivering pages down to set it wouldn't be the show that it is it wouldn't it would feel stagnant it would feel and not not to say that he is an amazing writer he is a genius he definitely has a huge say in everything that happens but he does let all of these other he's he's you have to be in order to be a good cook, you have to use a lot of ingredients. You don't just like make, you know, you don't just make it. You're not the one that makes it happen. You have to bring all these other things into it. And that's what he does. It's like con conducting a symphony. You And you need everyone to care equally as much about playing their instrument. And uh, so, yeah, I think I think hopefully that if I were ever become a showrunner, I would bring that that into it and be uh, a real democratic so that so that my writers wouldn't go home being like, fuck that, you know, fuck Megan. She's the worst. She ruins all my jokes, you know. And and I think writer and the writers being on staffs are really respectful of that. Like we don't cry when Dan kills our jokes because he keeps good ones. And so we so you just want to keep pitching more. You know that that the good ones are going to get through. And and so yeah, it's um, that's definitely something I would take with me, for sure. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you. This was really enjoyable. Sorry about my religious rant in the middle there. But. Oh no, I love those. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> That's the show. Thanks to Megan Gans. I do love a good religious rant. If you were confused, that was in reference to the last episode, part one. Thanks to you, the listener, for choosing Dizzy People's Radio over the millions of podcasts out there in the iTunes store and on SoundCloud. Uh, I live at dizzypeoples.com. Theo, turn the machine off.